Father, as we move um, now into opening up your word and <clears throat> hearing different stories, uh, we know that you have a purpose for today. You don't, you don't waste things. Um, and we're grateful for the chance to have sung to you. We're grateful for the chance to celebrate uh, the darlings and just uh, decades of ministry and their role here for several years. And Father, um, you know who's here. You know what we've been through. <clears throat> you know what we're going through. Um, and so I just pray that through your Holy Spirit, you really work through this story to bring encouragement, to bring impact, and to continue to shape us and to draw us more deeply into our trust and our love for you no matter where we find ourselves. So thank you for that. Thank you for this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whether you became a binge Netflix watcher during the pandemic, whether you're a reader, whether you're just a movie aficionado in all of those things, right, Netflix movies, uh, books and regular movies, there's kind of this common thread, this common reality about the plots and those things. And here's what happens in most of the plots of those things. Man, for about 45 minutes, right, everything will be going okay, things will be happy, but then you kind of know. If you've ever read a book or watched a movie, you know that after about yeah, 35, 40 minutes, if everybody's happy and smiling, if the romance is going in a nice direction, Right? If the hero is about to, you think, save the day, after about 45 or 50 minutes in the movie plot, man, things change. Right? Things tank. Things go south. And it stays there for a while, even in the beloved Hallmark Christmas movies. There's always this moment, right, when little lovebird and little lovebirdette, it's all happy until the old boyfriend rolls into Christmas town, and then it's chaos for a while, right? And then you kind of, in those movies, you stay in this, this, this hard point for a while, where the guy's in prison, or the thing's going to do, or the couple's broken up, and then usually at the end of most movies, they've resolved, and everything ends okay. Throughout movies, throughout stories, throughout fiction, there's this trajectory, there's this arc, there's this roller coaster of eh, to good, to hard, to up and down and ups and downs that we see in those type of fictional accounts. But the reality is it's not just fictional accounts that we see those ups and downs. It's not just fictional accounts where good days can turn into hard days in the course of just a few moments because we see a true story of where that happened in a biography that's contained in the Bible. We're walking through, if you're joining us online or checking us out here this morning, we're walking through the study throughout the Old Testament, putting together the, old, the pieces and the characters and the whole story. And last week we started this biography of a guy named Joseph. And today we're going to kind of see these continuing ups and downs in Joseph's life. We left him in a bad place that we'll talk about in just a few minutes. And we're going to see this roller coaster ride that Joseph goes through in his story. And here's why that's important for you and for me. Because in our stories, there's going to be moments when life is great. And in our stories, there have been, there will be, or maybe even today, there's moments when life isn't great. And when you're in a really challenging, hard, dark place. And through some truths in Joseph's story of the ups and downs and who God was and who God did, maybe you and I will be able to grab onto some truths for our story and some possibilities for hope for our story as we navigate the ups 
and down. So let's kind of remember, if you were with us last week, where we were, you had homework to do. I'm not going to check to see if you did it. I'm not going to be like Sunday school teacher to give you a gold star of the Bible if you read your homework for last week. But here's where we left Joseph last week. Joseph was this young kid, 17-year-old. And last week we saw him, we kind of had this up and down trajectory chart. We saw him in a pit in this kind of low place in his story. And here's what had happened. He got to this place because he really had done everything he was supposed to be. He was obedient, he was faithful, but his brothers, his family members, at first his brothers wanted to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him. One brother talked to another brother out of that, and they said, you know what, okay, we don't know what to do. We're just going to throw him in this old well. We're just going to leave him in this huge well in the middle of the desert. They sat down to have some lunch, which is odd, and then what we saw is this group of traders came into town. And so they sold their brother as a slave to this kind of caravan of nomadic traders, 17-year-old boy where we left him last week, wasn't in a great place in his story. But then as we pick up today, we're going to kind of see where the trajectory of his story goes. And Genesis 39 verses 1 through 6 kind of tell us the arc, what happens next in his story. We read this, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was in all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. And so we track this chart. What we see is that Joseph started off in his pit, but he's now moving into this upward place. And the next box in his story we see is Potiphar's house. You can kind of flip that side. Potiphar's house, right? Starts in a pit, but moves upward, and things are going well. He's still a slave, but now he's got freedom. He's got authority. He's got prestige. He's essentially, right, the director of operations, the chief operational officer for this, this, this soldier's house. He's in a good spot, better spot than this. But then something happens next in his story. He doesn't stay in that same spot. There's this interesting phrase that talks about the Lord being with him that we're going to come back to later. But here's what happens next. He's up here good, but Potiphar's wife, the dude that he, the lady that he works for, man, she starts to try to seduce Joseph. He's this teenage boy. She starts making the moves on him. One day, Potiphar's out of town. Nobody else is in the house. And her seduction really moves to this aggressive, assertive, physical level. And Joseph, in that moment, rejects the moves that she makes on him. She becomes angry that he didn't go along with the seduction. And because she's spiteful and she's angry, she falsely accuses him of attempted rape. And then what happens to this guy who's here, who, who he, he got here because he did everything he was supposed to do. He got here, right? He's doing everything he's supposed to do and he's being faithful and obedient and not have, committing adultery. And what happens to him next when he's accused of this crime he didn't commit? Well, we see it in verse 20 of chapter 39 and it says this in verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. In prison, accused of a crime that he didn't commit. In this low part of his life, 
again because he'd simply been obedient, because he'd simply acted the way that God wanted him to act, and he ends up in another low moment of his life. And about now in Joseph's mind, there may be some questions that are starting to kind of bubble up to the surface. And maybe in your mind, as you listen to the story, there's questions. Or maybe in your mind, you've had a moment when you've been here or here. Maybe you're there now. And questions start to bubble up to your mind. And the one question that can bubble up is, okay, Joseph is a guy that's trying to be obedient. Joseph is a guy that has this relationship with God. Here's the question. Okay, where's God? Like in this moment, right, the question that can bubble up is, is where is God? Did he not see that Joseph has been falsely accused of things? Did he not see Joseph trying to be obedient? Why isn't God jumping in? Why isn't God helping? Where is God? And the text answers that question for us. The text explains to us where God is in verse 29, 21 of chapter 39. This is what we see. But the Lord, talking about Joseph now being in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Next verse says this about where God was. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. In that pit, in that prison, in that dark moment, In that hard moment, there's this reality that we see about where God is in the middle of that. And what we see is this, that God is right there with him. Well, how does that statement maybe help you or help me? Here's how it helps us, because it gives us a truth to cling to. And the truth for us to cling to about the hard times in our lives is this, that in the lowest moments of our lives, God is with us. In the lowest moment of our lives, God is with us. And maybe this morning, some of you are going through some low moments, and what's making it even harder is you feel so alone. And you think nobody can understand, you think nobody can relate, there's no help to be found. And maybe this morning, what God's trying to remind you of is that in that moment, God is there with you. But, but here's another question that kind of <clears throat> bubbles up from that, right? The question is this, okay, if the lowest moment of our lives God is with us, here's the next elephant in the room. He is a big old elephant standing in this corner. He's got this huge trunk that he's braying. I don't know if elephants bray, but here's the second elephant in the room, and the second elephant in the room is this. Okay, well, that's great, Peter, but if God is with us, then why do certain things happen to us? Because if God is really with Joseph, if God is really with him, then why did he allow him to be thrown into the pit? If God was with him, why did he allow him to be unfalsely, unjustly accused and thrown into prison? If God was with him, why didn't God stop it from happening? Right? Doesn't he care? Why isn't he acting? And there's another layer that gets added onto this that kind of makes that elephant in the room a bit even more challenging. And and we see this in verse 21. We got 21 back here, this other layer that says this, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Now, let me just kind of, I'll be honest. Let me tell you how this lands on me. This is how that lands on me. Well, 
If God was really showing steadfast love to Joseph, then Joseph wouldn't have even known the keeper of the prison. Right? I read a verse like that and I'm thinking, man, if God shows steadfast love to me, that means I ain't even in Rikers prison. I don't want to know the warden of Rikers Island, right? Because if God has steadfast love to me, then why wouldn't he in his steadfast love keep me from even being in prison to begin with? See, from our perspective, we hear things like God is with us and God has steadfast love. And we think that means that God is going to keep us from experiencing certain things. But just because God loves us does not mean that bad things are never going to happen to us. And just because bad things happen to us does not mean that God doesn't love us. Bad things happen to us because what we saw in our second or third week here, bad things happen to us because of Genesis chapter 3, because of the fall, because sin entered the world and it broke everything. And you and I, we experience the aftershocks of that. We experience the damage of that. That shatters relationships and shatters our health and shatters peace and life as we sometimes know it. Here's the second truth for us to cling to. The second, first truth is that no matter what you're experiencing, God is with you. But, but here's the second truth to cling to. Steadfast love does not mean that God keeps us from every circumstance. It doesn't. But here's what steadfast love of God does mean. Steadfast love means that God is with us and loving us in the middle of every circumstance. Steadfast love means that God is with you and God is loving you no matter the circumstance that you're facing. And this morning, if your life is good, if you're in the good part of the plot of your story, then what you need to do, metaphorically, you need to get you like a Home Depot spiritual nail gun. And you need to, na- metaphorically, I don't want anybody going to Home Depot to buy a nail gun right now. You need to metaphorically drill this into your heart, soul, and mind. If you're in a good place in your story, you need to latch onto this truth that steadfast love means that God is with us and loving us in the middle of every circumstance. Because when you're in the middle of a circumstance, that, man, your emotions are going to be playing all sorts of games with you. That is not the time to try to grab to this. So for those of us this morning who are in a good place in our story, man, grab on to this. And if you're in a not so good place in your story, what I want to do this morning is I want to remind you of this. And I want to remind you of this because it's true. And the truth this morning is this, that no matter how dark your spot is, no matter how lonely you feel, no matter all the valid questions you're asking about God and what's going on, what I want to just try to bring you back to is the truth from Scripture that steadfast love means that God is with you and he is loving you now in the very middle of the circumstance in which you find yourself. And you and I, in any circumstance in which we find ourselves, we have a choice. We have a choice about the perspective that we're going to have. And we can have the wrong perspective, or we can have what the Bible would set up as a perspective. 
And I'm not saying that it's easy to have the right perspective. <clears throat> what I am saying is that we have a choice about how we want to look at that. And here's the wrong perspective. The wrong perspective is this, because I'm facing certain circumstances, God is not with me. That is not true. The proper perspective, the right perspective is this, that amidst the circumstances and within those circumstances, God is absolutely with me. Well, what happens to Joseph next? He's in this low point in his story. What happens is there starts to be some hope of better days because there's some dudes who are there in prison with him and both of them are very connected to Pharaoh, who's you know, the emperor, the king, whatever. Very connected to Pharaoh. One of these, both of these dudes have a dream. And Joseph has this gift from God, is able to interpret dreams. And for one of the guys, what the dream means is he's going to be released from prison. And he's going to go back to be with Pharaoh, right? And so here's what Joseph does, right? As, as that guy, I don't know if you've ever been um, <clears throat> in prison, but if you have, you'll recognize this. I've not personally been in prison for what I've done, but used to do some law enforcement gigs. So I've been in a good bit of prisons. And man, it is release day for one of these guys. One of these dudes who is in prison with Joseph, it's release day. He is standing there at that last thing. He's got on that orange jumpsuit and those orange slides. And the guy behind the counter is about to give him that brown paper bag that had all his belongings in it when he got checked into prison. This guy who's with Joseph is about to sign off his articles. He's going to get his watch back. He's going to get his lighter back. He's going to get his jeans back. He's going to get it all back. And as he's about to walk out and the gates of the prison are about to go, as he's about to walk out of that door, here's what Joseph says to him. Verse 40, Joseph says these kind of parting words to the guy. And he says this words, only remember me, right? Hey, dude, remember me. When it's well for you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. House is prison. Oh, he's like, dude. Don't forget me. Remember me. Tell Pharaoh, because I'm not supposed to be here. I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I've done nothing that they should put me into this pit. Joseph, in his story, is this place where he's got this potential now. It's kind of on this upswing. There's hope. There's possibility of better days, of things are going to get brighter and better. The question is, do they? They don't. You know how you don't? Because there's another box down here. And there's another box down there because there's another verse. And the next verse says this. The guy who got released, the guy that had his orange jumpsuit behind him, his slides behind him, walked out into freedom to jump into the pickup truck to go about his life back with Pharaoh was the cupbearer close to Pharaoh. And you know what he did? The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And after two whole years, the story takes another slide for Joseph. And he's down here again, back in this bottom box, and this bottom box is prison again. For two years, he's back in prison where he shouldn't be because he's been forgotten. Now, it's, this whole box is about a 13-year process. Now, the story doesn't end there because there's another box, and here's what happens. Two years later, later Pharaoh has a dream. And that cupbearer, that dude who got released, remembers, oh, yeah, man, I had me a cellmate down there at Rikers who was pretty good with dreams. And so Joseph gets to come to Pharaoh to try to interpret this dream, and it's a dream that there's going to be a famine. And so Joseph tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh, man, I've got this, God has given me this gift, he's going to tell me it's a famine. And then what Joseph does is he doesn't just interpret the dream, Joseph then kind of comes up with a strategic plan. 
about what Pharaoh should do and how the action steps and the next steps. And man, Pharaoh's really impressed. He's like, dude, this dude's a self-starter. He's got a plan. I'm going to put him in charge of this whole pandemic famine response. Joseph was the Dr. Fauci of the Egyptian Pharaoh. Whether you like him or not, that's just an illustration. I'm not advocating for him. I'm not condemning him. Please don't email me. I actually mean that. I'm making no political statement. I just had an illustration come to mind. Oh, I, I feel someone emailing me now. <laughs> I'm interpreting a dream. Okay. So, Joseph is the pandemic response guy. He's the famine response guy. He's put into power. And we read about this in the next verse. He's on this upswing. And let's read how it says, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, man, you are sharp. You got the plan. I'm elevating you. See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, the power of the authority, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain. Next clauses say this about him as we flip it. And he made him ride in the second chariot. You know why he's in the second chariot? Because, dude, he's second in charge. He's the vice president. And they called out before him, bowed the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Joseph now, as the trajectory of his story ends, he's in this last upper box up here, and this upper box of power and impact. Now, from here, like I said, to there, it's about 13 years. I get impatient waiting 13 seconds for microwave popcorn. Man, after, honestly, after 13 minutes of hardship, 13 days of hardship, I'm done with it. 13 months of hardship? Some of us break under that. This guy had 13 years of a lot of pits before the story finally moved here. Now, when he was here, I put power and impact strategically because God did give him a place of impact. And here's why. Because through his strategic plan, through rolling it out, Joseph was able to save hundreds of thousands of Egyptian lives. God used him here because hundreds of thousands of Egyptian moms and dads and grandmas and kids and toddlers and infants were able to live because Joseph had worked for seven years or so to put food before them on their table and had a plan. Interestingly, he had impact because his brothers who had sold him and his dad, they were still in the land of Israel, and they'd run out of food. And they didn't know where Joseph was, but they just came to Egypt. Man, that was their last resort. And Joseph was able to have impact because not only did he save a bunch of Egyptians, but he was also able to save his own family, literally help his own family live because of this up and down and up and down and up and down and that. And as he's in that place, and as Joseph looks back over all of that, what perspective does he have? How does he process that? What does he say? Well, here's what he says. Genesis, right? I think it's chapter 45. He looks back over this. He says to his brothers, come near to me, please. They came near and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Next, he continues and he says this, for the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which will there be neither plowing for And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on your life. Later on, further down, as Joseph's towards the end of his life, his dad's, he looks back over it again. This is what he says in Genesis chapter 50. 
You can flip it. He says this, do not fear, he's talking to his brothers, for I am, am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, the Bible is not saying that all of those low points in Joseph's life were good. The Bible is not trying to define those low moments as good. You know why? Because they weren't good. They were unfair. They were painful. They were dark. They were undeserved. And I'm not up here trying to find the bad points in your life as being good because pain isn't good. But what Joseph is saying and what the Bible is saying is this, right? As he looked back over everything, what he's saying is, but you know what? God is able to bring good out of darkness. The darkness isn't good. Don't miss that. And don't ever take a verse out of context to say the pain in people's life is necessarily always good. It's not our position to make that definition. But what we can take from this is this, that you know what? Even out of the darkest moment, which isn't good, God is still able to bring good. And what I'd love to do now, we've talked a little bit about Joseph's story. We've talked about how that might intersect with our stories. And I want you to listen for a few minutes about the story of a family from this church who has had some moments this year that were anything but good and were painful. And then we'll listen to their story about whether there's a way that God has been working to bring some good and to bring some impact out of that darkness. We're Courtney and Rashad Gibson. We met and got engaged the same year, married the following year, and had Abigail the year after that. I knew um, pretty much not long after we had Abby that I wanted to have another child, and Rashad was a bit on the fence, so we kind of didn't move forward there, and then we both got on the same page and felt like we, our family wasn't complete yet. And so, lo and behold, we found ourselves pregnant. And I got a phone call from my doctor's office. Um, so I knew it was information about the results of the testing, um, but I was not prepared to hear what I heard. And um, on the phone, I was told that our baby, that my blood work tested positive, that there was a 95% chance that our baby had trisomy 18. In my limited knowledge of that, I just remember from medical school learning that trisomy 18 babies die um, and other babies live. So that's what I was left with. And, you know, for about 30 seconds, I thought I could push it to the back of my mind and power through the rest of my day. But that quickly um, came to a halt and I just called Rashad on the phone crying and told him I was on my way home. I was trying to have as gentle a delivery as possible because I felt like if I, if there's too much pressure, if I push too much, maybe that would be too much on him. I'm sorry. And, um, but he, um, he came out and he was alive and breathing. I heard him cry and they uh, immediately wheeled him off and, I, and we had already had a plan. I said, Rashad, you go wherever Asher goes. And so he went with the, the neonatal care team and he could see very quickly that he was having difficulty breathing because of the heart defects. It was causing fluid buildup in his lungs. So they made the decision and said that we needed to intubate him or put a tube down his throat or else he wasn't gonna make it. So that's what they did. Uh, and then they wheeled him back into um, the delivery room with me. Um, and so we just had a few moments with him before they took him to the, um, to the neonatal intensive care unit. And they all felt like his only chance to potentially survive and come home to us was with the heart surgery. So um, the team at the hospital we were at, they, they agreed to do the heart surgery, uh, which was a whole ordeal. 
Um, and can you imagine your newborn having to have such a big procedure? And unfortunately, uh, a complication of the heart surgery is that he lost tone in his vasculature and he couldn't maintain a blood pressure. So two days after his surgery, he passed away. So he, it was actually 70 days that we had him with us. Um, and he, he passed away on day 70. I know for me, it got to the point when you, you hear everyone is trying to be encouraging, but then it's, you get to the point where you're like, I don't even feel like talking to anybody right now. Um, I just want him to be, to be well. Yeah. We never thought he wouldn't come home. We just said we may be here for a long time in this NICU, but he's coming home. He's going to be one of the ones that make it and come home, and this is going to be a huge testimony, and we're going to do wonderful things and just be a family. We never once thought he wasn't going to make it. Um, that's just the hope we had and the confidence we had. But in those 70 days where I was with him every single day, I learned truly what it means to love without condition. You know, I love my husband, I love my daughter, and I love them without condition, but there are expectations that you have in your marriage and, and in your healthy kids as they're, you know, to be obedient in those things. And with Asher, I didn't want or need anything. I just wanted him. So God showed me through our son how God loves me, that without condition, um, and that's the closest I've ever been to truly understanding how much God loves me. All right, Courtney and Rashad are going to come on up, um, <clears throat> and we're going to spend a few minutes just uh, chatting a little more um, <clears throat> about your story, and I shared this the first service. Um, man, I'm just so appreciative of you guys doing this. Um, you know, and I am sorry that you have to do this again. I, I, <clears throat> when I set up before, I wish we could not go through this. Um, you know, just this is something that you guys asked to do, and I think it really is God's sovereignty because it is something for a reason we'll talk about later. You wanted to kind of do in March, and it aligns a little bit with Joseph's story because you certainly had some really, really low points. Um, and so thanks again just for your courage and your vulnerability. This is as I mentioned, the most painful thing I think a family can go through. So you guys are people of faith. You're Christians. You believe that Jesus is real and the story is real and you died. Um, but man, I'd just love to hear a little bit about this whole process, the ups and downs, um, what that was like, and then even just spiritually, your faith through that, how that what that was like. Well, I think um, first when... Um, Courtney or she'll share a part, but when I first found out, it was a shock um, because at the time, I didn't know what trisomy 18 was. I didn't understand the, the prognosis um, other than when Courtney shared about the severity of it. It was very, very bleak, the outcome and what it would be. And I guess even then, it was still like kind of surreal. You don't really, it doesn't really hit you. Um, when she first called, and then over, I'll take this off. So over the next couple of months, um, we're going to the doctor, the doctor appointments and everything, and seeing how he's developing, and it begins to dawn on you that this is very serious and it doesn't look good. And I know for me, there were moments when it was very, very dark, 
very depressing. Um, very hard. And um, it was, um, and it still is to a degree a challenge, as you can see. But it's, it's during that time, it was just very hard to process. So. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, because of my medical background, I had a, a, a slight familiarity with it. I, I remember vaguely re remembering uh, reading about these babies. So there's different genetic syndromes you can have in trisomy 18. You have an extra copy of chromosome 18. And most of us have two copies of each chromosome. Um, but you can have a, a third copy. Uh, if it's 21, uh, babies end up with Down syndrome. If it's 18, they end up with something called Edwards syndrome. And the problem with Edwards syndrome is the abnormalities that are caused by that extra copy primarily are life-threatening abnormalities. So there's severe heart defects. Um, his, the main artery off of his heart, his aorta, was too narrow to support, you know, getting blood and oxygen to the rest of his body. He had large holes um, in his heart that would need repair. Uh, and so he went into early heart failure, which caused backup of fluid into his lungs. Uh, and that was the main issue. He couldn't breathe on his own because of the heart defects. Um, when we first got the diagnosis, um, yes, we were very much in shock. Uh, and it, it was just through my blood work. It said it was about a 95% chance that that's what he had. So we immediately, you know, we're on our knees praying to God, asking for healing or asking this diagnosis to be wrong. But as the months passed, you know, every ultrasound I had, it just showed more characteristics. Um, babies like this tend to have what they call clubbed feet, where, you know, his ankle turns in. And I would try and make myself think, well, you know, or my mom would say, well, you know, your niece, her ankle looked like that. And, you know, she's perfectly healthy and fine. But I knew, you know, it's typical what family and, and parents want to do to try and make things better and hope that it's not really what it is. Um, deep down, we knew it was really what it was. But we knew that he was alive and he was fighting. We were going to fight with him as long as he was willing to fight. Um, and uh, my pregnancy was normal other than that. I, I wasn't sick. I was like, well, you know, I'll have a sign or something if something's gone wrong. And I felt perfectly healthy. Um, and I remember when I was a little girl, there was a book called There's a Monster at the End of This Book. And it was a Sesame Street book. And it was my favorite book. And it was like, you know, Grover was telling you not to turn the page because there's a monster at the end. And my parents would read it to me. And, I, and every time I'd be so excited and nervous at the same time. And at the end, it was Cookie Monster. So it was a gentle monster everybody you know loved and this process i felt like it was a monster at the end of this book but the end was the monster was death uh not even my own you know i can't come to terms with that but the death of our precious baby um was a was a real possibility and that was hard to deal with um, so relying on strengthening each other and our faith in god is what helped us get through those nine months and then you add to it COVID being present where, you know, Rashad couldn't come to appointments with me, so I'd have to sit there by myself. Um, you know, no one's really being extra compassionate or caring to you because you almost seem like a burden because, you know, most, um, many families terminate these pregnancies because the baby is deemed incompatible with life. That's actually written about them in textbooks and medical textbooks. So when you choose life, um, you just feel isolated. You get care, but it's not the most compassionate care. Um, so those things were hard, but we, we leaned on our faith and, um, and, and comfort in one another and trust in God.
Uh, did you ever have moments in that part of the process where you were angry with God or doubted your faith? <clears throat> and I know in the first service in our times together, you talked about um, you just had great hope that this was going to be a great ending of the story, and it's not the ending that you had hoped for. Spiritually, where were you guys in those moments? Um, for me, I think there was a, a confidence that, um, that God was going to heal and sustain, um, although emotionally you're still like in no man's land because when you're going through the process, there are days in which you get an encouraging report and that he's doing well, his breathing's improving. Um, but then there are other days in which, oh, here comes an infection and it's not looking good and all that. And so you, you go up and you go back and forth, back and forth, just like with Joseph, but it was in a, a microcosm of that within pretty much a year. And so you're always going up and down, up and down, up and down. And then sometimes when you're down, you're just down. Um, and I think during that time, my faith, it wasn't the fact that I questioned God or I questioned Jesus and his person, his character. I guess within the mixture of emotions, you're, you're frustrated, you're, um, it's the tinge of anger there, um, uncertainty, but it didn't move me from like rebelling and just saying, I'm done with you guys. I didn't get to that point. It was just that I wanted things to be better, to be mm -hmm. better. I um, I uh, made it a point that I was not going to question God because I thought about so many good things in my life. My husband, our daughter, um, when we had her, and she's just such a wonderful blessing. She's three and a half years old. When we had her and everything was fine, I didn't say, God, why did you give us her? I thanked him. And so I said, God, I'm not going to question why you gave us Asher and why he has this problem. I'm just going to thank you and trust you in the midst of it. Um, and I'm going to tell you what I want. I want my son. I want our baby. Um, but if what I want is not in your will, I'm going to need you to help me. So I couldn't turn my back on God because I knew no matter what, we were going to need him. If Asher survived, he was going to have a lot of medical issues, uh, and that was going to really impact our lives. Um, you know, we, we both work full-time. I'm a surgeon. We have our daughter, and then to have him, and we believe me, we would do all we could, and we'd make it work, but it would, it would be a lot. And if we lost him, I just couldn't um, wrap my head about losing your baby. Um, and as parents, and, you know, particularly as a mother, you don't love your child at first sight. As a mother, you love your child the moment you find out you're pregnant. And that bond is from the moment you find out you're pregnant, you have a baby, before you feel movement. And he's a part of you, and you're living and growing and surviving together. And then, um, you know, and then, so I just knew that if I was going to suffer such a loss, there's no way I'd be able to get through it without God. Um, and, you know, sometimes you go through things where, you don't have room to be angry. You know, the loss of him has been so sad and heartbreaking. I haven't had room to be angry with God, and that's a good thing. I shouldn't be angry with him. 
has helped me to depend on him more. Um, and and uh, as Pastor Peter was saying, there are things you go, that go on in your life where you, your emotions can take control. And we as human beings, we know our emotions go with the wind. Um, you know, you one minute, like when you're younger and growing up, you think you love this person in high school or college, and two weeks later you're over it and, and there's somebody else. So if you're led by emotion, you're all over the place. But if you're led by truth, you have stability and you have a solid foundation. And we know that God's word is truth. And we know that he said that he works things out for our good ultimately and to trust in him and lean on our, not on our own understanding. So this was a time where knowing that word in advance helped us to act it out because if we leaned on our own understanding, we probably wouldn't be here uh, today. So why are you guys telling your story? Um, we're telling our story for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you know, since we've returned to church, I see it in the eyes of others who greet us. I see your compassion and your care and your questions like, how are you? Um, I can tell you that your prayers helped us throughout that whole process, throughout an unimaginable process. There's a strength that was beyond our own prayers for each other, beyond our family prayers. And we know that it was you all praying for us and you truly have shown the heart of God throughout the whole process, even after we lost him, you know, uh, meals to the house, continued prayer. And so this is our way, one, of just sharing where we're at and saying thank you. Um, we are hurting, but we're healing. So it's not, um, we're still in a process. And I don't think until we see him again, you'll ever be completely healed. You never get over it. You just li live with it. Um, but also to show that there is a an upside, there's a purpose and a plan that's beyond what you can imagine, what we can imagine in our finite minds. Um, through the loss of our son, we developed an organization called Asher's Answer in honor of him, but more importantly, to honor God. And it is a, an organization, it's a nonprofit that raises funds, um, modest funds to help support families who have babies uh, like Asher with rare trisomies. Uh, doesn't have to be the exact one. Many babies do survive, but they need help they need support. There are a lot of times where families have to travel and separate. Husbands and wives have to separate because locally where they're at, the medical care team or the hospital will not care for these babies because they think that it's futile. So they have to travel abroad to get heart surgery. Thankfully, we didn't have to do that. Um, it, took, it was a toll anyway, but to, to have to potentially be separated and go through that separately would have just been uh, just an extra burden that's just too much for any family. So that's why we developed Asher's Answer. Um, it, all all uh, funds and resources will totally go to helping families, whether it's providing for supplies that's not covered by insurance or whether it's you know, uh, uh, ways to memorialize their child in, in the event they do lose their child, things that they wouldn't have covered otherwise we want to support to say, we support you here. And I think that more families knew they had support and knew that there's others out there who are surviving or the ones, even the ones who don't, that it, their life is meaningful. Um, that's what we wanted to do. And, that's, and we feel that Asher's life, one of the purposes of his life, although short, was for us to help uh, others. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that. We, I know we've put the link back up there, but we can throw that link back up again on the screen. Um, and so what we want you to do, I mean, uh, man, there's just a lot of honesty and... Um, authenticity here that I know I benefit from and could 
continue talking for a long time and just listening. Uh, but we want to make sure you guys, if you want more information about their story, some great pictures of your family and of Asher, uh, there's a way. If you want to know ways you can pray, or maybe some of you feel led to try to partner with them uh, just financially as they look at the very dark pain of your lives, which I appreciate the first service, the hope of seeing him again, but you're going to carry this pain in different ways, but until you do see him again. But through that darkness, you know, your hope and prayer is that God does bring some good, and this is your step to do that. And so if you guys, any of you want to join them on the journey, you can click on that link, check it out. There's all sorts of ways to partner. So we did want to put that out in front of you um, today. So thanks again, guys. Um, Just wanted to add sure. uh, one more thing. Uh, you're never wrong to hope in God and to trust that he's going to answer your prayers. Um, the entire time, we never felt that we weren't going to bring our son home. We, we trusted and hoped and believed, and we know you guys prayed hard for us, and our family did too. And when things don't turn out the way you want them to, there's a natural tendency to be like, well, why did I hope? Or my prayer was useless. It was, your prayers were not useless. God answered. Uh, our son is healed. He's just in God's arms now. So he doesn't always answer in the way that you want but you're never wrong to trust beyond measure in him that he can and that he's possible is possible. Um, so I just hope that you're encouraged. And again, whatever we face in the life, in the, this life, as long as we have it on this earth, our response is going to be to trust God and to believe that he can do it every single time. Um, and that's, there's nothing, there's no wrong in that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that that is going to encourage somebody today who's wondering if trusting in God's worth it. So thank you for doing that. So appreciate you guys. It's been a, um, never gets better. And I know you guys have processed it and perhaps in a way this is reopening a lot of wounds. So just appreciate you. And I know that God's going to work through it. I would love if some folks jump on and partner with you and uh, honoring Asher really, really well and helping serve and care for other families. So so thank you. I'm going to pray. And then we'll wind our time down together. Father, pain is really, really hard. Um, and I just thank you for the moments we've heard, had to listen to the Gibsons. Um, and I pray that their story will give some hope to somebody who's listening today. Father, I, we know that you're the one who redeems the pain, that you're close to the brokenhearted. So even in this moment, through your Holy Spirit, Father, I just pray um, that you will continue to give strength and peace to Courtney and Rashad. Um, Thank you, God, that we can trust you, and that you are with us, and that you do love us, and that you ultimately heal and fix everything in the end. Um, And we're grateful for that. So give us strength and patience as we look for that ultimate healing and hope, and may we live well clinging to that. Thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you all for being here. This concludes our service, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week.